Well, please remain standing and let me have you take up your copy of God's Word and turn it this morning to Mark's Gospel, to chapter 12 this morning, Mark chapter 12. We'll be reading the first 12 verses, and as we do so, let us remember that this is God's Word to us, His very Word, breathed out by Him and recorded for us for our good. Mark chapter 12, let us give heed to God's Word. And He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. As we get ready to take a look at this passage, let's come before God in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for your word that you give to us. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would help us as we seek to understand what your Spirit says to the church this morning through these words. We pray, Father, that you would help he who preaches and help we who hear, that we may hear and understand. We ask all of this for Christ's sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's often the way Jesus is thought of and portrayed today. And in general, that's true. Uh, Matthew 12, 20 says that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. When Jesus dealt with people, and he dealt with people uh, we've seen all through this gospel Uh, When he deals with people who are sensitive to their sin or people who are oppressed by others, people repentant in their hearts, those lost, those searching, he was gentle and he was caring to them. Even when he had to speak on more serious issues and offer rebukes, he did it, well, in the same way we are to do it, with gentleness and respect. But then... There is Jesus when he deals with hypocrites. 
especially with those who have been entrusted with the instruction and the nurture of God's people. You know, James says, again, to, to us that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And that was certainly the case during Jesus' earthly ministry. A case in point, remember Matthew 23. Remember Jesus there in Matthew 23 speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees in a way that is very unlike the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Remember how he spoke to them? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And, and he said that over and over in that passage. Repeats and, and, and really, really excoriates these, these men for their hypocrisy, for their mistreatment of God's people. Well, in our passage for this morning, Jesus again, is making a strong point, but this morning he uses a parable. And he uses it to make that point again against the leaders and a point which is so transparent, even in the midst of a parable, that's clear to everyone there, everyone who hears it, everyone who reads it. Um, It's clear just what Jesus is saying and to whom he is speaking. He speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin. And he is, even as he speaks, provoking them to what will be an even stronger hatred of him as he touches another nerve with these people, with these men, these leaders of God's people, these, well, to speak to the, the, the parable this morning, to these tenants of the Lord's vineyard. We've seen that Jesus has both silenced and infuriated the members of this group, this group which we met last week known as the Sanhedrin, with his response to their challenge to his authority. And this morning we have, carrying right on from that incident, uh, what is the second in this series of confrontations between uh, Jesus and the Jewish leaders in this group. Remember, the Sanhedrin were the highest court of the Jews. They were made up of the chief priests and of the scribes and the elders, and that that those three groups were made up primarily of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as representatives of the Sanhedrin have just, in the passage before this, confronted Jesus with questions about his authority, he now confronts them albeit in a thinly veiled way, he confronts them regarding their appalling misuse of their authority and the path that he knows that that misuse is about to take. We're first going to look at, in this passage this morning, a vineyard and a son. With no real break from that previous verse, Jesus is still probably in the, the outer uh, areas there of the temple in Jerusalem. Mark tells us that he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables, and he records one of them for us here. 
And remember what a parable is. Generally, a parable is a, is a fictional story that's used to illustrate a particular point. Uh, parables are about, generally are about the big picture. They're not the same typically as an allegory where everything means something. Although, as this one is characterized as a, a parable, in this case, there are, we're going to see many points of connection between the story Jesus is telling and the point that he is making. This parable reads and is used very much like an allegory. Remember also that parables, and we've seen them before in Mark's gospel, that they are intended to reveal spiritual truth to those who have ears to hear them, to understand them, but at the same time to actually hide spiritual truth from those who don't. We've seen that Jesus has to, at various times, explain the meaning of the parables even to his disciples. But this morning, with this parable that he tells, there is no explanation given. There is no need for an explanation to be given. The meaning of this parable, as we'll see, is abundantly clear to everyone. The parable that Jesus gives is in verses 1 through 8, and the best way, I think, for us to see it is just to walk through it. Before we do, though, let me give one important point. Very often when, when Jesus speaks, as Mark records various things, we have said, we've said it time and time again, that there are passages from the Old Testament that are very often obviously in the mind of the person who is speaking and the background of the things that are being said, and that is the case here with this parable that we're going to read this morning. The obvious background for this parable is Isaiah chapter 5. Now let me read the, the important portion to you here. Isaiah 5, this is the first seven verses. He says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than, that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now you can see the parallels between that passage and what we've read in Mark chapter 12 this morning. And though that's the background, we don't want to uh, try to tie them too closely together because the fact that, that there are several differences. In Isaiah, there, there's no discussion of the tenants. And here in Mark, the, that's the focus, are the tenants. In Isaiah, the vineyard itself, um, though it's cared for by the planter, it produced no fruit. Here in Mark, the vineyard is very fruitful, but the caretakers, again, are evil. 
And the benefit to the planter is, is denied him by these treacherous tenants. But this is clearly the background, and there are uh, connections that we'll see. But let's look at the parable itself back in Mark chapter 12. Verse 1 says that a man planted a vineyard. It's his property. It's his possession. Vineyards, the, the growing of grapes, the production of wine from those grapes, was a very common and a very important activity in this area at this time. And this man, Jesus explains in the parable here, has planted a vineyard. He has taken care in its construction. It was given all that it needed for protection and for productivity. It was planted. The, the owner planted it before he gives it into the hands of these others. He saw to its functionality. He had, the text says, dug a pit for the wine press so that the grapes could be made into wine. Now, that was one of the main things that they did with grapes was to make wine out of it. Real wine, by the way, alcoholic wine. Um, he also put a fence around it to keep thieves out, to keep animals out. The text says that he built a tower which could be used for storage and it could also be used for someone to watch for those who would come in uh, to, to steal uh, the vines, to destroy the vines. And having seen to all of this, Jesus said that the owner then went into another country. And the fact of the owner being gone, going away into another country, the idea is far away, that's going to be important to the parable as we, as we go on. But before he left, he did one other thing. We're told that he leased it to tenants. Again, a very common practice in, in these days. He leased the land, this vineyard that he had made, to tenant farmers. Specifically kind of what we would think of as sharecroppers. They would enter into an agreement with someone, a contract to work the land, to make a good profit from the produce of the land. And the way that they paid their rent, their lease on this land, was that they would pay it in the form of a certain percentage of the produce from the land uh, that was to be given then to, to the, the owner. And so having set this vineyard up, planning it, setting it all up, the owner leaves then, goes away to another country, entrusting the vineyard into the hands of these tenants for them to work the land, to care for the land, to nurture into product, the production of a fruitful crop. Now, like I said, there's no explanation given at the end of the parable like there was, say, after the parable of the sower and the seed where Jesus explained uh, what was meant. But the elements here are very clear. We do get one piece of exposition that really helps us to understand and to, uh, to confirm all that we're going to draw from this parable. And it's right at the end. Look at, at verse 12. Verse 12 says, And they, that is the, the Sanhedrin, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So after Jesus finishes giving this parable, Mark tells us that the, the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they wanted to arrest Jesus again. Well, but they don't again. 
Because they fear the people. Why? Because, it says, they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Now, there's some question about who it was that did the perceiving. It's probably both. The Sanhedrin members knew what Jesus was saying. The crowd knew what Jesus was saying. And the Sanhedrin knew that the crowd knew what Jesus was saying. They all knew that the bad guys in this parable represent the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews. That and this information from Isaiah 5 are really the keys to understanding this parable. The owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants, the bad guys, are the Sanhedrin. They're the council, the leaders of the Jewish people. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, the people of God, and the religious institutions over which the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been given authority. Think back to just what we saw before with Jesus cursing the fig tree, which was a picture of of what he did in the middle of that sandwich when he goes into the temple and he clears the temple. And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of robbers. Who was he speaking to? The chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So that's the setup to the parable. That he has made, he has planted this, he has leased it out, and he's gone away. Well, verse 2 then gives us, quickly comes to the, the, the crisis point in the story. The harvest comes. And we might note here that the harvest took a while to come. It takes really three to four years before a full, normal yield of good grapes uh, could be expected. So quite a bit of time has passed from the time the man planted the vineyard and went away to when this harvest comes that is being spoken of here. And when it comes, the owner, rightly, in, in accord with the contract that he had with the, these tenants, he rightly expects to be able to get what is due him, and that's a portion of the produce from the field. And so he makes efforts to collect it. He sends a servant to collect the rent, if you will, in the form of, of the grapes or the wine from the grapes. Again, absolutely common, absolutely normal, should be without incident. But in the intervening time, while the owner was away in his absence, the the tenants over these few years have somehow began to think that they have a right, not to some, but to all of the fruit of this field. And the tenants... I think at this point we can call them the evil tenants, the wicked tenants, decide that they have no intention of honoring their commitment to the contract. Instead, when the servant of the landowner arrives, verse 3 says that they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, put yourself in that situation, the situation of the, of the landowner. 
I mean, we might think that, that this alone, when the servant returns injured and empty-handed, that that would cause the vineyard owner to take immediate action against the tenants. But the picture begins to emerge here of a landowner who is particularly kind and patient, and he's willing to give these evil sharecroppers another chance, which he does, but which results in an escalated and even worse treatment. Verse 4 says that again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So this guy, they knock on the head, probably with a rock, and treat him shamefully and send him away. An escalation over the first one. So he sends another. And this one, verse 5 says, they killed. So we're seeing quite clearly, the treachery of these wicked tenants who have shown themselves to be worthy of the wrath of the owner of the vineyard for their refusal to give to the owner of the vineyard that which he, to which he was due, and even more so for their treatment of the servants of the owner. Now, at the end of verse 5, Jesus adds a comment here. It says, he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. With that little statement that Jesus puts in here to this parable, this begins to to lift this parable above a, a story just about a good man in his vineyard and some evil tenants. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He's already referred to them as the servants of the owner. The idea of servants, the word servants, is used very often in the Old Testament to refer to a certain group of servants of God, those that we call the prophets. The prophets spoke God's word to God's people. That's what a prophet did. And the prophets in the Old Testament were, and by the way, they they were not just, we hear prophets sometime and sort of the the common conception of prophets, sometimes even within the church, is that they were particularly focused on just predicting the future. But that's not true. They did do that. Um, They were concerned at times to do that. But their function, especially as we, we get into the time of the kings of Israel and the divided kingdom, their, their time, their purpose was, was really concerned with proclaiming the Word of God to a people who were rejecting the Word of God. To encourage the people and their leaders to follow God. To follow Him only. Again, especially in those days of the kings, to, to reject the idolatry to which they into which they so often fell, and the, to, to reject the trusting of their, their own might or their own uh, military alliances, their own wisdom, and so forth, to reject all of that and to humbly look to God and serve Him, to worship Him, to give Him what was due. 
And when the people refused, when the leaders refused, which they did, if you know your Old Testament, you know that over and over and over, but when they refused, the prophets then, at the direct command of God, would come to warn God's people, to warn the leaders of the consequences of their actions, of where they were heading, to remind them of what God himself had said and what God himself had warned if they were to do that. And when the people and the leaders continued, which they did, to reject that word from the multitude of prophets, the the many others, to use Jesus' word here in Mark, then the prophets would take on a slightly different aspect of their task, and that would be not just to warn, but to declare what is going to happen. You've gotten to the point where the warning is done, now I'm going to let you know what God is going to do. He is going to send the Babylonians. He's going to send the Assyrians to come and to take you away from this land that he has given you. All of these things that were in line with the warnings that God has given, had given to them. Read Deuteronomy 28 this afternoon. Read of the blessings that were promised to the people for obedience and the curses for disobedience that the Lord laid down to his covenant people. But the Lord would send these prophets and more prophets and more prophets as the landowner in Mark 12 sent one servant and then another and then another and then many others. So God sent one prophet after another after another and many others. And what was the response? What was the response of especially the leaders of Israel, the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, to these servants that were sent by God? Well, Jesus' parable picks that up. He says, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So here then is is a sort of the, the background for this part of the parable. Um, 2 Chronicles 36, the very end of the, the record of the, the history of the kings of Israel, we read this. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Uh, we, we don't have time. We could look at, at Jeremiah 7, uh, verses 1 through 26, and see something similar. We could look at Jeremiah 25, 4, and see something similar. But what did they do? Let me read uh, from Nehemiah 9, 26. Nevertheless, it says, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. That's the way they treated the prophets. We get another little picture of that in the book of Hebrews. 
in chapter 11. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell. This is the hall of faith that we all uh, know of. Uh, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. What does he have to say about the prophets? He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's what the leaders of God's people did to those whom God sent to warn them. They rejected, they mistreated, and even killed God's servants as the evil tenants here in Mark chapter 12 rejected, mistreated, and even killed the servants of the owner of the vineyard. But the owner was still gracious, still patient with the the tenants. How patient? How gracious? Well, look at verse 6. He's not done yet. Verse 6 says, he still had, or he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. By the way, that word uh, there, a beloved son, can also be translated an only son. Remember, folks, this is a parable. After such treatment, I can't think of any father who would then send his son to deal with these people, at least not alone. But, of course, this is not just about a man and his vineyard. And so there is something important. And at the time... Think of when Jesus is doing this on his last week before his crucifixion, when all of this is coming to a head. So it is very appropriate, very timely that Jesus speaks of this here. Now, the expectation in the story is that even if the evil tenants deal treacherously with the servants, certainly, the owner says, they'll respect my son. And so he sends them, he sends him. But here's what happens, verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The owner does send the son, and the tenants notice him. They recognize him. And they say to one another, You see that? They say to one another, This is a calculated plan. Malice aforethought. And, of course, this is just what the Jewish leaders did with respect to Christ. They planned, they plotted to kill the son who had come. Eventually, they entered into an agreement with Judas Iscariot to betray him. Look at the scheming here. They say, this is the heir. Apparently, they figure there are no more servants for this man to send. If he's even around, the owner might be dead for all they know. In fact, he's probably dead. So if we, they figure, kill this one, if we kill his son, we might just keep this land for ourselves without owing anything to anybody. And so what do they do? Verse 8 says that they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. They killed him 
They didn't even bury him. Just threw him over the wall. A very disgraceful thing not to bury someone in Israel. And that's what they do. And that is the end of the parable. But Jesus then follows up with a question. To the leaders standing there listening, he asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, it's a rhetorical question. Jesus gives the answer here. In, in Matthew's record of this, the, the leaders that he asks gives the answer. So everybody knows the answer. Everybody knows what is going to be done. But there's something specific in it. Jesus here gives the answer. He says he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now here's Jesus really saying the same thing he had said through the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple. He's saying to the leaders, you guys are done. But notice that though the wicked tenants will be destroyed, the vineyard is preserved. It, Jesus says, will be given to others. Matthew says, to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Now, we think, we almost sort of throw that part of the line away when we read it. We think, oh, he will come and destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to somebody else. Who's the vineyard of God going to be given to? If it's not to these leaders who have been given the responsibility to tend to the vineyard of God, who will it be given to? Well, first it's going to be given to Jesus who is both the son of the owner and is himself the owner. But then it's going to be given to a broader group consisting first of the apostles and those who will be part of that community. But then ultimately, this idea of it giving, being given to others points to the fact that the church, the kingdom of God, is going to be given to the church which consists of both Jews and Gentiles. And that's perhaps the most shocking part as the, the hearers start to realize what Jesus is saying. Because they thought it was theirs and only theirs. And we see this statement being brought out in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, 46. In Acts 18, 6. Um, in Acts 28, 28. Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So he will destroy the tenants. He will remove them, and he's going to give the vineyard to others, which he does. And though the evil tenants here are judged, they're destroyed, though the vineyard, God's vineyard, is, is preserved and given to other tenants, the the vindication of the Son now comes into play. It was left out. Now it's brought in. We've seen the vineyard and a son. Now we see a building and a stone. We'll just see this briefly. So Jesus now returns to a discussion of the owner and to the owner's son particularly, who, after all the other servants had been sent to receive what was due, he himself was sent, but he was killed and thrown out of the vineyard. Very reminiscent of John 1, 
11 that says that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And then Jesus brings in another Old Testament quotation. He sort of shifts gears a little bit, shifts um, uh, pictures. He brings in a quotation here in verse 10, a quotation from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Here, though, the sun has become a stone, a certain kind of stone. You know, a few months ago, we witnessed the coronation of King Charles III to the throne of the United Kingdom. I don't know if any of you watched that. It was very interesting. A ceremony full of pomp and scripture, scriptural language, theatrics, and history. One part of the history that was important wasn't even really on display. In the throne um, on which Prince Charles III was crowned as King Charles III, under a platform on the throne on which he sat was a stone called the Stone of Scone or the Stone of Destiny. A very unimpressive to look at, uh, an oblong piece of red sandstone that dates at least all the way back to the year 500 or so. Although if you believe the legends, it was actually uh, the stone uh, that Jacob set up when he was on his way to Haran in Genesis 28. That's unlikely, but that's the way these legends go. But this stone has a fascinating history. It's been used for the coronations of monarchs in both Scotland and Britain for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was stolen. It was recovered. Now it's kept in Scotland, in Edinburgh Castle, alongside the Scottish crown jewels. Those who are coronated, kings who were coronated, uh, used to sit on the stone itself as part of their coronation, though now there's a platform placed above it to preserve it. Like I said, it remains in Edinburgh Castle all the time, except when it's transported, as it was, under very tight security now, to Westminster Abbey for coronations of kings and queens. Now the stone which is referenced in Psalm 118 and here in Mark 12 is not like that. At least it's not held in such high regard. This stone of scone is a very highly regarded object to the Scottish and to the British. But this stone that Jesus speaks of here is a stone that was just rejected. Rejected by the builders, by the leaders of God's people. Considered not fit, not worthy of of praise or even of use. Or, as it ties in with the parable above here, not even worthy to exist, but to be tossed aside. Ultimately, to be hung on a cross. But beloved, Jesus here, the apostles later, and the psalmist and the prophets before have proclaimed that this stone, Jesus, by God's doing, Jesus says, has become the cornerstone. The first and most important stone in the foundation of a structure which orients the whole foundation and is critical to the structure. 
And while the estimation of man is that this stone is worthy of rejection, God, in Isaiah 28, 16, says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. God says, This rock is my son, the king that I have set. In Zion. Jesus says this rock is the cornerstone of the church. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Peter, speaking to the scribes and the elders, again in Acts 4.11 will say this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation, he says, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But Peter mentions something else in in his uh, first epistle. In 1 Peter 2.7, he quotes another passage in Isaiah where God gives his evaluation of this stone. He quotes Psalm 118.22 that says that the stone, this is the stone that the builders rejected. It was rejected by the builders and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, that that has become the cornerstone. But then he also quotes Isaiah 8.14, which speaks of this stone as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that sets before us today the choice in regard to Christ. A choice that every person on the face of the earth, every person in the pews of the church must make. And it comes down to the question, who is Christ? Well, according to the Bible, he is the stone that was rejected by the religious leaders of God's people. But that very stone God the Father has set as the very cornerstone of the foundation of his kingdom. Now, look at the end of Jesus' quote here from Psalm 118, which we have in verse 11. It says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This was and is, beloved, all the doing of God. All part of the plan of God. That his son would be rejected. Peter says in Acts 2 that that Jesus was handed over into the hands of wicked men according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That was God's doing. To allow his son to be given into the hands of those who would kill him. But it was ultimately so that his son would be honored. After all of this, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, says that he has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess, every knee shall shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is Christ? Is he to be utterly rejected or is he to be utterly honored? Is he a rock of offense 
or is he precious beyond value? Every person has to make that decision. Every person will either stumble over Christ or plant themselves on him as the foundation for their lives. Which will you do? Which will you do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have taken this this one who was rejected by men, despised by even those who were leaders of your people, that you have taken him and by your doing, you have made him the cornerstone of the foundation of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that everyone who hears these words would bow before Christ. That they would plant themselves on him. Lord, we recognize that the ones in this parable, Lord, it's not that they didn't recognize the son. They did. And that they, they did and they decided to reject him, to kill him. And Lord, we, but Lord, we pray that as, as we recognize Christ, we pray that we would embrace him. And we ask this for his glory and your glory. Amen.